We are turning this morning to the book of Exodus chapter 19. We're in verse one today. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to use the one in the chairs underneath you, in front of you. We'll have scripture on the screen as well to help you along. But in a few moments, that's where we're gonna start reading is in the book of Exodus chapter 19, verse one. A couple of thoughts before we begin reading this passage. If you were with us a little while ago, you remember that as we started the book of Exodus, we talked about how the story of this book from the large sweeping arch from beginning to end, the big ideas in this book, all the way to the individual stories and the lessons that we learn along the way, these things are foundational, they're critical to the lives of God's people in both the Old Testament and then in the New. So much of what we see happen in this book, how we learn about who God is and what God does among his people and asks from his people becomes central to the life of his people, becomes central to our lives as the church of Jesus Christ as well. Some of the most critical themes inside of scripture get some of their most interesting and fascinating explanations in the Old Testament here in the book of Exodus. When we talk about the blood of the Passover lamb and the salvation from Exodus, we talked about some very powerful things. Some of the most memorable, important miracles that occur in the Old Testament happen inside of the book of Exodus. The plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, the freedom of God's people from slavery. And we are now, as we get to chapter 19 and move into chapter 20, we're at another one of those incredibly critical moments to the lives of God's people. We are at Mount Sinai. We're on our way to the Ten Commandments and the giving of the law, the character of God being revealed to his people and what God calls from his people, what he wants them to do as well. It's pivotal in the history of the people of God. So what happens at Mount Sinai in the giving of the law becomes this foundation for us throughout history and moving forward. God is going to reveal himself again in powerful ways and actually in far more specific ways than he has revealed himself so far inside of this book. God is going to take pains to structure his people around his character and his will. If God is calling us to follow him, to obey him, well, who is this God? What does he have to say? What is this God like? He's going to begin answering those questions more specifically. And God continues to establish a nation that belongs to himself. And one, in the passage that we're going to read this morning, that will act as missionaries to the rest of the world. So Exodus 19 brings the people of God to the foot of Mount Sinai. And it brings Moses to the top of this mountain. This poor guy who's just a little over 80 years old in one chapter climbs a mountain three times, okay? No excuses. Chapter 20 opens up with the 10 commandments, but before we get there, we've got a lot of preparation. God is gonna lay a foundation for his people. So God has a few things to say first about his work on behalf of their freedom, their relationship with him, and then he's gonna talk through the rest of this chapter how to prepare to actually see and be a part of the holiness, be in the presence of a holy God. So we're gonna pay attention to God's relationship with his people and his design for them. It's gonna be a treasure trove of comfort for the people of God and of purpose mission for the people of God. So in our passage of scripture, here are the couple of things that we're really gonna pay attention to this morning. First of all, 
Covenant faithfulness is called for in this passage. God deliberately and explicitly speaks of covenant faithfulness. The relationship that God is building is designed to work both ways. He has promised his people in Exodus, and it's a promise that harkens all the way back to Abraham. God has promised, I will be faithful. I am establishing this relationship, this covenant with you, and I will hold up my end, and I will be faithful. And on the other side of that, he says, now what I want from you is covenant faithfulness. You're going to listen to me. You're going to follow me. You're going to obey my commands. And so God reiterates that before we get to the Ten Commandments. And then God sends them on mission. God uses some powerful and I think really expressive and beautiful language in the few verses we're going to deal with this morning. As he sends them on mission, God is going to use them, a holy people, a treasured possession to him, to let the world know who this God is. So let's begin reading Exodus chapter 19. We're going to deal with the first six verses this morning. So Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, friends, this is the word of the Lord. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Three months of wandering after leaving the land of Egypt and all the things that have happened in between, they make their way to the wilderness of Sinai, and here they are again at the foot of this mountain, what the text often calls the mountain of God. They're east of the Red Sea, and they're now encamped at Mount Sinai. Now, Moses has been in this region before. If we go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was in his self-imposed exile, he had made his way all the way to Midian. And there, if you remember some of the story, he is at a well. He actually saved some women from some shepherds who were there. Uh, a father-in-law by the name of Jethro, is, as these daughters bring this guy home, they go, why? he says, why don't one of you marry him, this guy? We need this guy in the family. So he marries Zippor and his family gets started there. And while Moses is busy tending the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro, one day he comes against the side of this mountain and he sees a bush there that is burning but is not consumed. And he turns aside and he has that incredible encounter with the great I am. It's at the foot of this mountain. And it's beautiful in the literature itself how that story crescendos into chapter 20. At what point, what we have is a bush that is burning and God is talking to Moses. And what we're going to see in the next chapter is a mountain that is on fire with the glory of God. That's all happening here at this same place. 
So Moses goes to the top of the mountain and God begins to speak to him there. He says, this is what I want you to tell the house of Jacob, the people of Israel. And if you're sensitive to this inside of this book, God continues to add this language, this vocabulary on top of vocabulary about this people that belong to him. So he references again this relationship that he had built with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are now the children of those 12 tribes. Jacob, the man that God gave the name Israel, he continues to pull them into himself. He says, you are mine, you have been mine for a long time, and now we're going to continue this covenant relationship. It's not just me and Jacob now. It's now me and this entire nation of people. So in these six verses, God establishes some foundational things about what he has done for his people. He reminds them and then what he expects from his people as well. So this structure of relationship is critical to what it means to be the people of God. He has saved them Now he is calling for full faithfulness on their part. The book of Deuteronomy, remember, I keep encouraging you guys as we go through Exodus, read the book of Deuteronomy alongside this book. It is Moses' final sermon to his people before he climbs up a mountain and dies, and then Joshua takes over and they enter the promised land. But in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is reiterating the things that they've learned through the law and their experiences with God. And a few times, Moses reiterates this point that we have just read. One of those moments happens in Deuteronomy 11, verse one. I love how Moses puts this. He says, you therefore shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Notice how scripture puts those thoughts together. I want you to love the God who has saved you and preserved you and brought you to the edge of the promise then. And that love will mean that you will want to follow the commandments of the Lord your God. It's a desire that comes from inside of us. To love someone is to will their good, to want the best. To love God is to want to do what he has called us to do. So he's put these things together for us in powerful ways. And so God is establishing very quickly, I saved you from the land of Egypt and I brought you here to be with me. And as he does this, God establishes again that he is a God who is powerful and that he is a God who cares profoundly for his people. Again, we're reminded, his people are reminded, the Egyptians have been overcome by the power of the Lord your God. The last time we saw an Egyptian was when their corpses washed up on the shore of the Red Sea. So all of the human might that Egypt could muster could not overcome the Lord of the people of Israel. All of the gods that they followed were overcome through the plagues. And so God is showing himself to his people, to us. It doesn't matter what human structures array themselves against your God. He is greater than all of those things. It doesn't matter what demonic forces are arrayed against the people of God. He is greater than all of those things. So he reminds them of his power, that he has saved them. 
<laughs> Our God still saves. Our God still saves. It's incredible. It is also incredible that God, of all transcendent glory, holiness, righteousness, and omnipotence, the one who spun the universe into existence and is greater than the infinity of the universe itself cares about you. That's stunning. It's absolutely amazing. And in their context, guys, this is, this is interesting. The Egyptians and all these other pagan lands, they worship gods that belong to wood. They worship gods that belong to stones and alligators and goats and sheep. And it's, they're really close. It's really tightly knit with their lives, but those gods don't care about them. Now we're talking about the God over all of creation who cares for you, who actually pays attention to you. He saves them because he's powerful enough to save them. And he saves us because he cares enough to save us. So in this passage, there are a couple of moments of just, to me, as I've gone through this this week, it's just kind of overwhelming, beautiful language of God's care for his children. He says, I want you to remember how I bore you on eagle's wings to this point. I brought you here. This is a fascinating image of care and security. There is a rabbinical tradition it goes back a long way about what this passage means, what this phrase, what this image means. And the way this rabbinical tradition goes is, is this. If you watch other birds when they're tending to their young or they're carrying their young or they're watching over them as they learn how to fly, these other birds will fly over their young because you've got predators above them and so they're trying to protect their young beneath them or they actually carry their young in their talons. But eagles have no predator that flies higher than they do. And so they fly under their young. They sometimes may even carry their young on their wings. There is no one, there is no one who threatens you when you are on the wings of your Savior. Isn't this beautiful? There's no predator above God who can take you out of his hands. It's this beautiful traditional understanding of what this passage is. And he goes on to say in a few phrases that they are becoming his treasured possession. They're becoming his treasured possession. Now, this is a nation who three months and a day ago were slaves. They were mistreated. They were barely human. They were abused. They were maligned. They were nobody. And now they have become the most treasured possession in the court of the king of the universe. This is a beautiful image of God's salvation of his children and what he does for us when he accomplishes this. And some more of what God says, again, to me, has just been kind of overwhelming as I think this through. God takes these saved people that he is now busy transforming into his image, taking into his hands and on his wings, and he says in this passage, 
I've done all of this to bring you to me. It's interesting that he doesn't say, I've done all of this so that you guys can come here to this mountain and watch this incredible fireworks show. He doesn't say, I, I did all of this so you guys could finally learn to follow Moses and do what I tell him to tell you to do. That's not what he says. I've done all of this to bring you to me. All of this wandering, all of this difficulty, all of this testing, Remember, before we got here, there are these four crises that the people went through. We don't have water. We need water. We don't have food. We need food. We've got enemies now that are coming against us. And every step of the way, God is pressing his people in toward faithfulness. And he is revealing his providential care and power for his children. All of the difficulties and trials and confusions that you have been walking through, what I have been doing, God says, is I have been bringing you to me. Friends, this is an incredible truth about walking with Jesus Christ. If you are a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ and your life is in his hands and you're actually paying attention to this relationship and what this works like, friends, it does not matter where the journey in life has you right now. What God is doing is he's bringing you to himself. Whatever trial, whatever confusion, whatever roadblocks, whatever difficulties, friends, when we are in the hands of our God, what he is doing is he's bringing us closer to himself. So he has safely brought his people to the foot of this mountain and he's going to reveal himself even more. He's going to give these commandments so that they know who he is, what it means to obey him, to be actually built as individuals, families, and a nation in the image of their God instead of the image of the Egyptian gods and the Canaanite gods and the Amalekite gods. We need to be made in the image of God. Romans chapter eight puts this thought like this. Speaking of God's work in the life of his church, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is building a family that belongs to Jesus Christ by turning you into little images of Christ. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God bringing you to himself, drawing you closer to him. So it's in this moment that God calls for covenant faithfulness. God calls for obedience from his saved people. If you will obey my voice and you will keep my covenant, this relationship's gonna go the way that it is supposed to go. You are my treasured possession, he says. This has actually been God's call to his people since establishing this relationship with Abraham. It's the same vocabulary. You can track this, in fact, through Scripture. All the way back in Genesis chapter 17, God tells Abraham, and as for you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring and you throughout their generations. This is what God is setting up. Our faithfulness to God, honors God's 
act of salvation. Every now and then, we simply need to come to terms with what we have been given. All I have been given by Jesus Christ has been done by him in his grace and in his goodness and in his forgiveness and not because I deserved an ounce of it. This is what God has done for us. Brother and sister in Christ, you did not deserve your salvation. It's been given to you. So now our faithfulness, what God calls for from us, honors what we have been given by God. Lives of gratitude, lives of thanksgiving, lives transformed by the love and the power of God, now dedicated to him and to his kingdom. I've been reading through this little book by a Puritan named William Secker. If you do not want to be convicted in your faith, don't read the Puritans. Just avoid them. William Secker, this little book called The Consistent Christian, talking about why Christians do the things they do. Part of what he says is this, now where there is an overabundance of privilege, there should be an overabundance of practice. Do we know what we have been given? They have gone from being those slaves and abused and mistreated and barely human beings to this treasured possession in the court of the king of the universe. And this is the Christian now, too, where there's an overabundance of privilege that's been given to us. There now needs to be an overabundance of practice. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells the same kind of story. In that passage, he tells us, it is by grace through faith that you are saved. It is not by your works, lest any of us could boast that we earn the salvation of God. That doesn't happen for any of us. It's by grace, it's through faith. And then in the very next breath, in Ephesians 2.10, he says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now life is different. Now life belongs to Jesus Christ. We obey and we follow and we go. So our faithfulness, it honors the salvation that we have been given. And our obedience marks us out as God's people. We actually look different. We do different things. We say different things. We believe different things. We carry this mark on our lives if we are obedient that says we belong to this God and not that God. This is an incredible thing about absolutely every human life you watch a human life long enough and you will be able to tell who is giving the orders. We think we are giving the orders that doesn't happen for anybody. Someone else is giving the marching orders. And for followers of Jesus Christ, it's Jesus Christ. Every epistle that Paul writes contains this moment where somewhere roughly halfway through his epistle, he says, okay, now that we got all of that straight, what I need you to do is live like this is all true. One of those passages is 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. I know you guys 
are doing it, but let's do it more. What you've learned about Christ, keep walking that way, living that way. So we are forced, when we listen to God talk to his people about how this covenant relationship works, when we follow that same thought through all of scripture, realizing that this belongs to every single one of us, we are forced to ask questions of our own lives. What marks me out as a follower of Jesus Christ and not as a follower of the world? What makes this life different? How can this life make no sense except the story of Jesus is true? This is what we're being pressed into because my obedience marks me. It makes me visibly his. Obedience means that I have decided through the power of God's spirit to live my life this way and not that way. It means my Christianity is not like a suit of clothes that I can put on when I go one place and take off when I go someplace else. It is a change of life and soul. It is a change of joy. It is a change of priorities. It's a change of who and what we love, what we connect ourselves to. And when we come in contact with that truth, the next question I think we have to ask is, are you and I ready for what that actually means? What then lays before us to do? What God calls us to do? What God commands us to do? Are we ready for what that obedience should look like in our lives? God says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. All of the earth is mine. I need the story of who I am to go through all of the earth. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he says. God's people are a chosen people. Of all of the nations on the earth, God has chosen the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be his people. This means they're going to benefit from the care and the power of God. It is a privilege and a benefit to receive the law of God, this revelation of who he is in detail, to learn what it means to follow him. They receive the benefit of the promise of God, and then they also receive God's expectation upon their lives. They are chosen and they are loved. They will become God's treasured possession. He says, you are, in fact, a holy nation to me. In this context, what that word means is that they are set aside. They have literally been pulled out of the world. They've been pulled out of Egypt. You're not going to be like that anymore. So they're set aside. They're pulled out of the world, and they've been set aside for the purpose of God. You are a holy nation. You belong to me now. And in the same way, friends, this isn't just an Old Testament story. This is the language that is used in the New Testament to describe what God has done with his church and his chosen people still today. His children, he's chosen us to be his people, to be treasured by him and to be holy for him. And this is important for us to think about for a moment or two. The choosing depends on God and not you. It choo the choosing depends on what God has decided to do in his grace and mercy and sovereignty. It's not because of who we are. And friends, this little truth 
I know sometimes we as Christians, we kind of wrestle with this truth, but it's actually very freeing. If you can gain your salvation by the good things you do, you can lose your salvation by the stupid things you do, right? My salvation is not set up in my good works. It is clenched tightly in the hand of the God who saved me. This is where my soul is now. God reaches out to you and chooses you. And all of this depends on him and his steadfast love. And we are chosen by grace and not by merit. Moses grabs this point again in the book of Deuteronomy as he, as he talks to the people of God. Remember, Moses has wrestled with these people for 40 years, and he knows that they're not the easiest people to live with. He knows this. But he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is a great passage about what it means for God's people to be chosen. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. All of this language has stuck with Moses. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. He is faithful to his promise that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It's not because you are mighty and special and powerful. It's because God loves you. It's because he's promised to do this. So he finishes and completes his promise. The same thought is throughout the New Testament. At one point early on, Christ is talking about where John the disciple is dealing with what it means to be the chosen people of God, and he uses the language of birth, and he uses the idea of adoption. And every time I think of this doctrine inside of the New Testament, that we are adopted to be the children of God, Friends, it's such an incredible thing. Adoption depends completely on the decision of the parent. A child can say over and over and over, I want you to adopt me, I want you to adopt me, I want you to adopt me. But legally, that does nothing until the parent says, you're mine. This is what God does. He says, you're mine. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 But to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God calls you, he chooses you, because he loves you, and because he is glorified when his creation is saved and becomes his. It's an incredible truth. So we go into our last couple of thoughts here about it being a nation of priests. It struck me this week that there are people here this morning who are listening to this who need to hear at least one of two things. I mean, need to hear one of these two things. And the first is this. You are chosen and you are loved. 
This God of all creation who will wrap it all up in might and power and glory and reign forever and ever loves you, cares for you. You are his treasured possession and there is comfort and there is strength there. Some of us need to hear, okay, now you need to actually do something. If you listen to my voice and obey my commands, and he calls his people a nation of priests to him. God's people are a nation of priests. It's interesting language for God to use at this point in the Old Testament. There will be some later on who actually become priests inside of the people of God, the tribe of Levi. But what God is doing now with his people is he's saying, I'm calling all of you to be priests to the nations around the rest of the earth. All the earth is mine and I need you to take this message to the rest of the world. Priests in the Old Testament primarily have two functions. They teach God's law and they facilitate worship. So they hang on to and they preserve and they make sure the people of God understand the law of God and the voice of God and the word of God. And they're also responsible for making sure that the people of God worship him. There is this horizontal uh, relationship, uh, this horizontal relationship and this vertical relationship that priests have. And God wants Israel to teach the rest of the world about him and to facilitate the worship of the one true God around the earth. It's an incredible thing that God does when he says, I want you to be a nation of priests. And so it is that the New Testament picks up this same language. And at one point, the apostle Peter actually calls the church a holy priesthood. He's building us up together as this temple that's going to be filled with the Spirit of God and we are a holy priesthood. He grabs all of the vocabulary here, a nation of priests and a holy nation, and he says, this is the church now. This is the job of the church. So friends, you and I need to hear this this morning. We are responsible for protecting and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are responsible for rightly dividing the word of God. We are responsible for sticking as close as we know to stick to the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot let this get watered down. Otherwise, it is no longer the good news. And we are responsible for proclaiming this. The rest of the body knows the word of God, the truth of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the rest of the world knows the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we let this get watered down and we change our message, we abdicate our role. We throw away our role as the priest to the nations. And instead of being a priest, in the throne room of our God, it's like we become jesters in the court of our culture. We become a joke. We become an appendix to culture. And this is what happens every single time the church waters down the gospel of Jesus Christ so they can hang out with the cool kids. They become the joke. We are responsible for holding on to and proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. And then we are responsible as the people of God, as a holy priesthood, 
for proclaiming the glory of God. This is what our lives need to do, our time together. This is what it needs to do. Christ actually taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I mean, the first prayer there is that the name of God would be glorified, would be important, would be heavy, would be effectual in this world, that his name would be hallowed. If we fear the world more than we fear the Lord, we're going to become cheerleaders for all the wrong things. So we follow God, this God who saved us, this God who has carried us on eagle's wings, who throughout everything in our lives has actually brought us to himself. And we proclaim these truths. We've been given something so much greater than the world has to offer, and it is what the world needs. We are a chosen people, treasured in the sight of our Creator and our Savior, and we are the people who take the message of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. Let's pray.